guys, I know it's the first service, but you know, <laughs> going to need more from you than that. Good morning. Good morning. Oh, that's so great. Okay. I'm just stalling for as I find the passage. Okay. Uh, the scripture reading for this morning comes actually from two places in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, sorry, the Gospel of Luke. Whoa, it is the first service. And, um, but we're mostly just going to stay in Luke 24. So uh, if you'll turn to page 885 in your pew Bibles, you'll find Luke 24. And we're going to jump around a little bit, but we're going to start in verse 25. And uh, as you're making your way on page 885 to Luke 24, 25, I just want to share a quote from this uh, British theologian, uh, missionary, man named Leslie Newbegin, man named Leslie. And uh, this man, Leslie, said this, um, the way we understand our lives depends on how we answer this one question. What is the big story of which my life story is a part? What is the great big story the big, true, overarching story that your life story and my life story is a part of? It's a question I want us to be thinking about as we're um, looking at this passage here, starting in Luke 24, verse 25. Go from 24 to 25 and then uh, to verse 31 here. So this is the word of the Lord. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Going down to verse 36. Those two disciples came and met the other disciples uh, who were gathered together in an upper room, huddled together in fear. And verse 36 says this, as they were all talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets must be fulfilled. 
Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then looking back to Luke 13, this is Jesus in the parable of the mustard seed, Luke 13, starting in verse 18. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Amen. Let's take a moment and reflect on God's word. you pray with me? Father, we are foolish and slow of heart, but you are faithful and patient with foolish, slow of heart, lost sheep like us. Lord, would you open our eyes, would you open our ears, would you open our hearts and open our hands? Teach us to walk in your way. Write your law in our hearts. Cause us to do it. We ask in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> you want to just keep your Bible open to Luke 24 um, as we're walking through. Uh, you know, it, it was a little more than a year ago that I was on a, a call with some other RUF campus ministers, and we were just talking about how things are going. And, you, you know, you would guess by the, um, by the timing what kind of call I was on. It was what has become uh, my least favorite type of call. Uh, it is known as a Zoom call. And I was on this Zoom call um, just listening to bad audio and watching pixelated video of my friends, um, and we were trying to encourage one another. And uh, it was, um, you know, during that season, I, I, I hate to bring this up again, but do you, you remember what it was like, the beginning of COVID, where it was like, okay, how long is this going to end? Or like, how long is this going to last? And like, when is this going to end? And there was just so much uncertainty, so much anxiety. And we had all this, you know, this year of amazing, great programs and plans of things for students at the university that we were about to roll out. And then, you know, all our shiny new plans just got like bit the dust. And so, and you know, my Students were getting sent home and, you know, churches weren't able to gather in person. Y'all remember that. 
And uh, so I was sharing with my friend Tom Hart, who's a campus minister. Uh, he was at ECU, and now he's at Furman. Go Paladins. So you know, there's a lot of Furman love here at, at um, Christ Community. Uh, so Tom was praying for me because I was sharing these just fears and anxieties and struggles. And uh, he could have prayed a lot of things. He could have prayed, God, would you help Sam have more faith? Or God, would you help Sam quit worrying? Or, you know, something like that. But instead, he prayed something for me that was remarkable. And it has shaped the way that I have lived since then. Um, And hopefully, (laughs) it's continuing to shape me. Um, He said this. He said, Father, may Sam and I both see that we are living right now in the middle of your fulfilled promise. Living in the middle of a fulfilled promise, of a kept promise. Now, I'd wager that we usually don't think that about ourselves, especially when our circumstances aren't pleasing uh, or comfortable, when some just awful providence comes our way, when suffering comes our way, when pandemic and frustration and isolation happens. Now, Tom's statement was less about my circumstances and less about the situation that was happening as if like, you know, COVID was this fulfillment of a prophetic prediction or something like that. He's not that kind of, you know, pastor. But what he was trying to say is he was trying to take my eyes away from the the trees of my current experience to the big forest of God's glory and God's purposes to say that right now we are living in the middle of a much bigger unfolding story where God is absolutely keeping all of his promises and bringing every single word that he has spoken to pass and to fruition. You know, my friend Tom knew uh, what Uh, Pastor Paul Tripp writes all the time, and that's this. He says, human beings do not live life based on the facts of their experience, but on the interpretation of the facts. We don't just live our lives. We don't just draw our source of life from the facts of our life, from the events and the circumstances, but from our interpretation of those facts and circumstances. And so in Luke 24, when we look at it, We see a group of disciples, two groups, a pair of disciples on the road and a group of disciples huddled in an upper room who are struggling to interpret the facts of their recent experience, who are struggling to put together the story of their lives and the suffering and the circumstances that they've encountered and the big story of God's promises that he's made to his people throughout history. And what Jesus very gently and dramatically and lovingly, patiently does is he brings those two things together for them. And I'm hoping that he can bring those two things together for us. Because you see, I I believe that what Luke wants us to see here is that because Jesus rose from the dead, because God has kept that one big promise Because he died for the sins of each and every one of his people and has begun the renewal of all things through his resurrection from the dead. 
that right now God's kingdom rule has arrived just as it's promised. And he is right now at work to fix and heal and restore everything and everyone that is connected to him. And so I think what Luke wants for us is to have confidence in the power of God's promises. And so we're just going to look at Luke 24 and maybe look at it a little bit of Luke chapter 13 from two different angles. First, I want to look at the promise of Christ's kingdom. And second, I want to look at the presence of Christ's kingdom. First, the promise of the kingdom. Now, just, just look in Luke 24 for me. You've got these, these two groups of people, and what they have in common is they're both struggling to understand these big ticket promises of God that he has made about his kingdom power and his rule in relationship to their present circumstances. Now, I keep saying the word kingdom of God, and that, that bears explaining. Now, if you look further up in Luke uh, 24, right in uh, verse 21, you get a hint as to what the, was in the disciples' minds when they heard this phrase, the kingdom of God. What do they say in verse 21? It says, oh, this is what we had hoped in. We were hoping that he, meaning Jesus, was going to be the one to redeem Israel. So when the Bible speaks about the kingdom of God, it's not talking about the, you know, the invisible, purely spiritual kingdom called heaven, where the angels are and God's you know, uh, throne is. It's not purely speaking about the church, which are, more accurately, the citizens of God's kingdom, the people in God's kingdom. When the Bible speaks about the kingdom of God, it's, it's talking about the redemption of Israel the redemption of a particular people, that Jesus would be a Messiah like another Messiah, the anointed king, David, or, or even his son Solomon, that, that he would bring the ruling and reigning power of God into this world to heal it and restore it and fix it, that, that there would be an outpost of God's power an outpost of heaven on earth. The kingdom of God, when the Bible speaks about that, it is speaking about God's power, his reign, you know, R-E-I-G-N, like a king's reign. His ruling power, working in and through his people in a particular place. Whenever it speaks about the kingdom of God, it's always talking about those three things. God's power working in and through and for a people in a particular place. So what was their problem? I mean, I think they believed that. I think the disciples believed that. They, they believed in you know, the God's power working through his people in a particular place. But here's the problem. They had too narrow a view of what that kingdom would look like. Now, this semester, we're going through the parables of Jesus in uh, RUF in our large group meetings, which is our weekly evangelistic Bible study that we do on campus. And over and over again, Jesus is trying to like shatter people's pictures and false images of what the kingdom of God is going to be. Because they had all these false expectations. I mean, even in the language of the people on the road. What did they say? He was going to redeem Israel. You know, like, like Moses, like to bring all the Israelites out of Egypt. 
That's what we're looking for. Just bring, bring us out of Rome and kick the Romans out just like you know, Moses kicked Pharaoh out or rather got out and then you know, drowned them in the Red Sea. I want that again. God, could you please do that again? But the problem was is they, they were reading the Old Testament with blinders on. They were seeing these promises and they were doing what I sometimes do um, when I speak with uh, my spouse which is, you know, you hear all this input and you hear all this information, but then you kind of pick and choose what you want to hear. And so you just like have a, a partial hearing syndrome. Um, my, my children also have that, that same, I think it's a congenital issue. Um, so their problem was, is that they had received this good information, but they had a true but incomplete picture so when they heard something like this, uh, Jesus, his first sermon that he gives, Luke chapter four, he goes into the temple and he reads the Isaiah scroll, chapter 61. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery sight for the blind, set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he said, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, meaning all that's starting right now. And people said, woohoo kick out the Romans. This is going to be awesome. You know, victory, 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 power, 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 triumph, triumph, triumph. And then he began to be misunderstood, to suffer and to die, to be murdered on a Roman cross. Why? Well, you know, they loved the part of uh, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor for people like them. But they didn't know that in order to bring the outsiders in, in order to preach the good news to the nations, to gather together all the people of God, that Jesus himself would have to suffer and die. They didn't read Isaiah 53, that he would have to be crushed. The servant would have to be crushed. The Messiah would have to be crushed. Why? For our sins, for our iniquities, not just for ours, but for those of all who would come to believe in him. And so they, they didn't see the picture. If you, you have to imagine this. this is so hard for us to, to know and to get. The cross was not good news for them. The cross was profoundly bad news. It was the worst thing that had ever happened to them. Because their king, the one that they had put all their hope and trust in, was being defeated right before their eyes. And all their hopes of this world glory and this world triumph and this world power were going down the drain. And that's why they just could not understand what Jesus could possibly mean. That's why resurrection wasn't even on the map for them. Well, they, they didn't believe that he, that he was really there. And so what does Jesus do to convince them? And I think this is amazing because in both, both appearances, he takes them through a Bible study as if to say, don't merely believe your eyes. Believe what God has said. Look at the promises of God. Luke 24, 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the thing concerning himself. Luke uh, 24, 44, he said to them, these are my words I spoke to you while I was still with you. 
Remember what I said? Everything written about me with, about the, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So in the face of doubt, Jesus points them to the written down, recorded, and preserved promises of God. He takes them through a Bible study. Through, from Moses to the prophets. And that's just, just a Bible way of talking about the entire Old Testament. He's saying, from the very beginning, this is how it was supposed to be. God called the shot way before it even happened. <laughs> I mean, it, I love, one of the, my favorite things about Christ's community is, is you all know Genesis 3.15, the prophecy that God promised to Eve after Adam and Eve fell. God promises, and he says, one day, there will be a child, there'll be a seed of the woman and he will crush the serpent's head. He will destroy evil. He will put an end to everything that hurts, everything that harms, but he will be hurt in the process. He will crush the snake's head and the snake will wound his heel. And then all throughout the Old Testament, it just, that, that promise kind of gains momentum and then the snowball just rolls and, 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 and gathers and gathers. And then Jesus comes on the scene after, you know, just decades and, and, and centuries of suffering and oppression and frustration for God's people. And all the while, the prophets are making these promises about the one future day when God will come to be with his people, to be their God, to be with them forever, to never leave them or forsake them, that he would bless them with his presence so that they could be a blessing to the entire world. That's the picture. I don't, I mean, maybe Jesus started in Genesis 3. I mean, maybe he started with Abraham. I mean, maybe he went, uh, you know, straight to David. Maybe he talked about Noah and his family, you know, coming through um, God's judgment in the storm. I mean, I, I don't know what he did. I bet it was incredible. I mean, it says that, that they were um, overwhelmed with joy, right? That their hearts were burning within him while he did a Bible study with them. I mean, that's a lot to, that, that's what I hope for for my Bible studies. It has yet to happen. Do you expect that when you read the Bible? I mean, do you approach the Bible that way? Like feeding hungrily on these promises of God? Here's what happened. The cash value of it is these disciples who I'm fully convinced because of their doubt and their fear were about to return to whatever life that they had left to follow Jesus. Whatever vices they had left, you know, Matthew, the tax collector, I think he's like, well, I'm just going to go back and start getting more money again. You know, um, other people that had lived kind of, you know, sensual uh, lives of pleasure, they're like, well, guess no point in anything, waiting. I I'm just going to go and have a party now. That all of that, that hope, all of that expectation had been frustrated. So they're like, well, what does it even matter? Jesus immediately restores their faith and their trust in God. Why? Because he showed them that God actually cares and that God is powerful enough to keep his promises. What Jesus shows us is that God really does keep his promises. 
Now, I love my children. I have two children, Gus and Hattie. Some of you know them very well. And I am, but here's the thing. I am an imperfect father. Newsflash, I'm a sinner. And um, try as I might to keep all the promises that I make to my kids, it happens over and over again that, um, how do I say this? My, my promises outpunt the coverage of my power. Does that make sense? I will promise something, I'll anticipate something, I'll even plan for something, and I'm just, it's, I can't deliver. Earlier this week, um, there were really good waves for those of you who care about such things. Thanks to Hurricane Larry, like someone's weird uncle was a hurricane. So <laughs> Uncle Larry the Hurricane. So we got really good waves, and I was talking to my son, Gus, who is really into surfing right now. And one morning as I was leaving for work, I looked, and I was like, I don't have that much going on today. I've got some flexibility in the afternoon. Gus, when you get home from school, I should be getting home from work, and then we can go surfing. And he's like, yes. And I'm sure all day he was like, going surfing with my dad. And here's what happened. Bunch of things at work ran long, lost track of time, caught in traffic, and I'm stuck in traffic on Randall Parkway, trying to leave the UNCW campus, and I'm looking at my phone, and I'm just thinking, I've let my son down. And at the time I, I got home, it was just, it was too late. You know, there was, we couldn't have done it. And, um, that bothers me a lot that I was not able to keep my word to him. And I'm a sinful, finite being. And I love my son a lot. But God loves his children with an infinite amount of love. And when he makes a promise, he has infinite power at his disposal to make it happen. Do you think that God would somehow with his infinite mind, lose track of a promise that he has made to you, forgot that he did it. Or God, with his infinite power at his disposal, holding on to the events of human history in his hands, as it were, that, he would, that something would kind of slip out of his control. It is absolutely impossible. God is so committed to keeping his promises for his children. And he is utterly able to cause everything that he has promised to come to pass. So, but how do those promises come to pass? How do they take shape in the world? I think what Jesus is going to show us here is that they take an unexpected shape. That they take what might be um, an easy to overlook shape. They take the shape of a seed. So moving from the promises of God, let's look at the, the presence, the presence of Christ's kingdom in the world. How is it present? You know, Mark chapter four, Jesus' first sermon, you know, it says like he's, he's going out and he says, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, okay? So it's at hand, it's here in some kind of way in Jesus' ministry. How is it at hand? In what form is it at hand? It's present as a seed, Remember Jesus' little parable in Luke 13. This is Jesus, I, I believe, his explanation of how the kingdom comes. 
What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, this tiny little seed that a man sows in his garden and it grows. This tiny thing that grows and becomes a tree and then the birds of the air make nests in its branches. Now, of all the objects in God's creation that Jesus could have used to illustrate the way that his kingdom is operating in the world, why does he choose a seed? Well, he's speaking about the surprising power that springs out of small beginnings. What Jesus is showing us is that despite outward appearances, the kingdom really is growing. That it has begun, that it has been planted in this world, and it is expanding and it will continue to grow, and it will never be stopped, because like a seed, God's kingdom survives and perseveres. Now, before I knew I was preaching on this, I got um, a newsletter, because I subscribed to a bunch of different newsletters, um, different blogs and things like that, and and this one guy just decided to write an article about seeds. He just got fascinated about them, and so he wrote down all these facts about seeds, and I thought, oh, that really fits now, so I'm going to use that. So this is, what, this is what I learned from reading this guy's newsletter about what a, seed is, what a seed is. He said, what a seed looks like depends on what it does to survive. Some seeds have sticky parts that, get, that kind of hitch a ride on animals. Some seeds are tiny and they get carried in the wind. So some seeds uh, float on water. Some seeds have hard shells that you know, can survive getting eaten by people or animals and then just kind of passed through, Right? Um, some seeds, and I thought this was fascinating. There's a seed of a plant, um, called a protea or a king protea, which is this beautiful flower. And it only germinates in the presence of smoke. So it only, anytime there's a forest fire, that's when the seeds like, all right, it's time to grow. What seeds are like is they're, 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 time and space travelers. Everything they, they do, they're engineered toward movement out and growth toward maturity. So a seed is like a tiny concentrated container of potential life-giving energy. They're life-holding, life-preserving machines. I learned this also. Did you know that one of the oldest seeds that's ever been germinated was a seed that was found in the ruins of Herod the Great's temple over 2,000 years ago in Judea, outside of Jerusalem. It was a date, a date palm. They found this seed that had been kept dry and they planted it in the ground, laid dormant for 2,000 years, and guess what happened? There's eight palm trees right now in the Middle East that are growing from this 2,000-year-old seed. That is unbelievable. Seeds are awesome. Seeds are made to survive and to grow. And so what Jesus is saying in Luke 13 is he's saying, okay, this is how the campaign to heal and restore and to judge the living and the dead, this is how it starts. This is how the fulfillment of all of God's promises start. This is how everything bad begins to come untrue. It starts small and it starts slow but it continues. You can be sure of it. It survives. And if you're not looking for it, you'll miss it. But then there's going to be this time where everything on heaven and on earth and under the earth is going to see it and recognize it because the growth is unstoppable. And you see this pattern all throughout the Bible, don't you? I mean, remember the nation of Israel? How does it start? 
just this little family, Abraham and Sarah, this elderly couple, you know, just cashing their social security checks, just sitting at home, just wondering, what are we going to do, you know? And God promises that they're going to have a child. She laughs, and Abraham says, well, let's try. And they have a child, and an entire nation comes from that fulfilled promise. And here's the thing. Abraham never lived to see his family become a nation. He lived to see a seed, one child. You know, back to Luke 24, you've got all these disciples sitting there. And they're thinking, yes, resurrected Jesus. This is awesome. And then I imagine they're like, okay, where's the army? Okay, when do we like move out, Jesus? And Jesus just sits there and he's like eating broiled fish, smiling. And like, well, what are we supposed to do? And this is what he says. And I think this is so instructive for us. Wait. Be my witnesses. Wait. (laughs) Meaning that there's this gap between promise and fulfillment between the the seed form when it takes root and then when it becomes to full um, fulfillment and fruition. And then be my witnesses, meaning, you know, live in line with these truths of this, this new reality that I have brought you into. Live as citizens of the kingdom. Live holy lives. Live obedient lives. Live faithful lives. Dig into my word. Pray. Worship. Serve. Suffer. Do acts of justice and mercy and beauty in the world. Live as this tiny countercultural group of people and the kingdom will grow. He's not just telling them to twiddle their thumbs, you know. Each of the eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection in Luke 24 died before Jesus' second coming, before the fulfillment of all things. Most likely... <laughs> Most of us in this room will die before we see the fulfillment of Jesus's, all of God's promises. Maybe not. He may come this afternoon. But while we're waiting, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to live in line with the truth of these promises that have already begun coming true. And we're supposed to remember, I think, of Jesus's words in Luke 24, that it is completely necessary that everything written about him must be fulfilled. That whenever you feel doubt, whenever you feel discouraged, whenever you're wondering if God really cares, Jesus is saying, okay, you go back to the word. You stick your nose in the Bible and you get, surround yourself with a group of other people to put your hope back into joint. And as you live in this world, do not be afraid of looking small or foolish in the world's eyes because the seed is still sprouting. It's not tree form yet, it's seed form. So I just wonder, do you believe this? If you would call yourself a Christian, if you placed your faith in Jesus as the ruling, reigning, risen Messiah, if you have pledged your allegiance to him, does your hope and your confidence spring from that, from these fulfilled promises? 
Or are you like me sometimes, where it just becomes so easy to try to put our confidence and put our hope in the things we can touch and see in this world? And if you do not know if you are united to Christ, if you do not know him as your Lord and your King and your Savior, I beg you, what are you waiting for? I mean, time is rolling. The seed is sprouting. And Jesus is gathering citizens into the kingdom. He's embracing sinners left and right to bring them in to his family. Will you stand outside or will you come in? Will you let him be judged for your sin or will you stand in judgment for your own sin? I beg you, run to Christ. I'll just close with this. Um, Henry David Thoreau, not a Christian, a naturalist, um, he wrote this. He says, I have great faith in a seed. Convince me that you have a seed there, and I am prepared to expect wonders. Here is the seed we have an empty tomb. We have miraculous church that is growing every single day and spreading from sea to sea, gathering in people from the four winds. We have a seed. Do you expect wonders? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us. Help us. Give us faith to expect wonders. Give us faith to believe in the big story of your redemption and restoration, that even the difficult events of our life, Lord, do not fall outside the sphere of your sovereign care. Lord, help us, help us, help us, Father, to believe that we really are living in the middle of a filled promise and give us hope, give us courage, give us faith, Give us love for those around us. In Christ's name, amen.